Let's open with a word of prayer if we could. Our Father, we do give praise to your name this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to be together as the body of Christ. Thank you for your word and the privilege we have to open it and to study it. Pray that you would guide uh, all that's said in this classroom this morning. May it please you. May it be to your glory. And Lord, may you uh, lead us by your spirit. Uh, We're thankful for the truth that rises out of the scripture and pray that it would uh, our minds would be conformed to what it teaches and Lord that you would uh, give us hope in the midst of uh, this evil and cruel world we thank you for this privilege in the name of Jesus our Savior amen well, this is week number 30 in our study of eschatology and week number five in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. And as you know, we haven't been going through the details of chapters 38 and 39. We've been taking somewhat of an overview. And last week we looked at the war that is in described in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, looked at some of the characteristics of that war, and then went over to Revelation and pulled out several passages and compared the two. And as we saw, there are many similarities. Uh, There are certain things that happen in both wars, um, like hailstones falling uh, from the sky that kill people. Um, But there's some things that are different also. And that's what, in particular, I wanted to show. We talked about uh, the torrential rain that is in Ezekiel is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. The... uh, the manner in which the invading armies die is different between the two wars. It's clear in uh, the one in Ezekiel that the people who are invading take their swords and kill each other, probably in a state of confusion with the earthquake and the rain and just confusion, so they kill each other. Whereas in the book of Revelation, uh, the invading armies are killed by the sword that comes out of Jesus Christ's mouth. Um, there apparently is bloodshed in that war in Revelation because it speaks of the, the blood rising up to the bridles of the horses for a distance, I think it's 107 miles. So um, there apparently is bloodshed, but the men die in different ways in those two wars. And then also in Ezekiel, there's the mention of fire coming down from heaven, fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. And there's no mention of that over in the war that you're, you see detailed in Revelation. So there, there are certain things that just aren't there. And so my conclusion um, is that those two wars are different. The one in tribulation clear, uh, in Revelation clearly happens during the years of tribulation prior to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And I believe the one that's in Ezekiel is at the end of the reign of Jesus Christ and matches up to the war given in Revelation chapter 20. After the thousand years, Satan is released again. And that war is only four short verses. It does describe fire coming down from heaven to consume those who are invading uh, again. And so I see that matching up to what is given over in Ezekiel. Um, 
you don't have to agree with that. You can certainly have differing opinions. There are a lot of people who have differing opinions on that. Um, but in, in my mind, that's the way that it's laid out. And I believe that Ezekiel is chronological, meaning if I'm right, that there's a thousand years that passes between chapter 37 and chapter 38 of Ezekiel. The Davidic kingdom is established in chapter 37, and then in chapter 38 you have this war. And so the, clearly the establishment of the Davidic kingdom would be at the beginning of the millennial reign. So I think in the white spaces between chapters 37 and 38, there's a thousand years. Um, so we'll know in eternity whether that's right or not. Um, it's not worth arguing about, but it's certainly worth trying to understand because that's why the scriptures are given to us and God detailed all this is to help us to understand, not to confuse us. So you need to come to conclusions on what you think about that um, or at least keep studying it um, at the very least. So there's one more passage that I said last week we would look at and it's not in Revelation, it's not in Ezekiel, it's over in Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. And if you've never studied Daniel 11, this is a fascinating chapter because it literally sweeps um, through history from the time of Daniel or shortly after Daniel is writing until yet into the future today, all the way till the Antichrist comes. is all detailed here in chapter 11. And I, we won't go through the details um, of all the history that's given here, but literally 600 years, about 500 years, of history is given in this Daniel chapter 11 in excruciating detail. I mean, he talks ab um, about the Persians coming in and defeating um, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, who are there uh, at the time when Daniel's writing this. Um, he, he gives names of those guys who are going to come in and be the leaders of the uh, Persian kingdom. Um, and then he goes through, um, if you'll remember, Alexander the Great defeated the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. And shortly after he did that, he died. And then his kingdom was split into four kingdoms. All of that is detailed here in chapter 11. Um, that, those four kingdoms really grew into two kingdoms. The dominant kingdoms, um, you had the Seleucids, and you had those who were in Egypt. And those two dominated the other two, so those were the two significant kingdoms after Alexander the Great died. And coming out of that Seleucid kingdom was uh, a line of leaders named Antiochus. And ultimately, the, I think it's the fourth in the line, is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the guy who, um, uh, he, you know, he, he gave his, I think it's his sister, to the Egyptians to make peace uh, as a wife of the uh, Ptolemies, the leader of the Egyptian kingdom. That's all detailed here. In chapter 11, the very swapping of, of, of daughters for wives and 
all of that is laid out, uh, including in this, uh, ultimately, um, Antiochus was defeated or at least pushed back by the Romans who sailed from Cyprus down into Egypt and pushed him back into, um, out, of the, out of Egypt. And that's detailed here, that the Romans came in. This was the beginning of the change from the, uh, from the Seleucids over to the Romans, taking over all of Palestine and all that area, began in chapter 11 here. And Antiochus, when he got pushed out of Egypt, um, went on his way back home in Syria. He went through um, Jerusalem and crushed Jerusalem. Actually, this is when he set up what's known as the abomination of desolation. He sacrificed not pig, well, he did sacrifice a pig on the altar, but he sacrificed Jews on the altar every day. And so on the altar that was built for sacrifices to God, Antiochus profaned it by sacrificing Jews every day on that altar. Um, so it's a horrendous time. Many of those who were thought to be faithful give up their faith and join with Antiochus during those days. Dark, dark days. But ultimately, um, you'll probably know this name, the Maccabees come and push Antiochus back to his homeland, and he dies um, a very despondent man uh, because he had lost all that he had conquered during his life. Um, and so, and then you have the Maccabees who uh, begin to reign for about a hundred years, and ultimately they're defeated by the Romans, and that leads into the century before Jesus Christ. So all this is detailed here in chapter 11. It's, it's fascinating to study the history and then to look at what um, was written. Because of that, there are many um, people who study the book of Daniel and say that it was not written by Daniel in 600 BC. It was written between 1 and 200 BC after all this history had happened. That's not true. Daniel gives dates and, and timestamps all throughout the book of Daniel so you know when it was written. Um, and the, the only thing... The only way you can come to the conclusions that those people do is to disbelieve what is written in the book of Daniel itself. And so we don't do that. We take it for um, what it says that Daniel wrote it in 600 B.C. before all this history takes place. And so it's a great prophecy. But in the middle of the book, he shifts. And this is what I want to show you, and this is why I want to talk about it. Not for all that history, although that's very um, encouraging and that God does have a plan and that he's been unfolding the plan. And that plan included um, the Persians and included the Babylonians, the Persians, the Seleucids, and then Rome. All of that was detailed there and is in the plan of God uh, and always has been. Um, but what I want to show you begins down in like verse 34 of um, of the chapter. Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 11. Um, just, we can start in 34. Now when they fall, they will be, they will be granted a little help and many will join them in hypocrisy. That's the people 
who give up the Jewish faith and join with Antiochus. There are many who join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall, that's the true believers, in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. And then all of a sudden you have this statement, because it is still to come, meaning it's still in the future, at the appointed time. So there's something that God has appointed, not at the time that Daniel's writing, but in the future, and then he begins to describe it. And and most um, who um, take the scriptures for what they mean believe that this is talking about a distant future time, because we'll see what happens, and actually matches up to what the Antichrist does during the years of tribulation. And you'll see why we believe that. I, I agree with that interpretation of this, because notice what happens next. Then the king will do as he pleases, in verse 36, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, that's the true God, and will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Meaning God has a plan that he's decreed, and it will happen, and there will come a man who will magnify himself above all gods, even above the holy God himself. And he will claim, because keep reading, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desires of women. You can take your own interpretation of that. Nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god who his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses fortresses, with the help of a foreign god. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out the land for a price. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Keep reading. He will also enter the beautiful land, that would be Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. He will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So you have this guy who comes in and takes over all of the known land except for Moab, Edom, and the sons of Ammon. And you remember their reserve for the judgment of God. As we read through Ezekiel, it said these are preserved. And, and they're preserved because during the time when Christ comes, they will be destroyed. So they're being reserved for that destruction. But this, this king who exalts himself above all other gods, which is what the Antichrist will do, 
the false prophet will come and say, you need to worship the Antichrist. And if you don't, you'll be put to death. And that's what's being described here. That those countries who don't fall in allegiance to the Antichrist will be wiped out by the Antichrist and his forces. And you see all the wars. The kings from the north are trying to come stop him. The kings from the south are trying to come stop him. And he overcomes them all. He goes into Egypt and does whatever he pleases. He goes wherever he wants to and does whatever he pleases. And he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem on the throne of God and creates again the abomination of desolation and described um, earlier in Daniel by sacrificing unclean things on that altar. And so this is, I believe, describing what happens during the tribulation years. You could argue against that. You could say it matches to some other war, but not with this kind of domination. There's been no one who has dominated um, in the way that these guys do in this chapter. Now, you could make an argument that um, before World War I and the thousand years before that, that there was a kingdom that controlled all of today what is known as the Arab nations. I mean, you, you understand that the Arab nations did not exist until the end of World War I. That's when all those boundaries were drawn. They, they didn't exist. They weren't there until the end of World War I. That, that was all part of the Hasmonean dynasty that lasted for a thousand years and was clearly Muslim in their origin. That's the people who changed Constantinople to Istanbul. Um, I mean, they covered up the um, Christian relics with, um, with Muslim relics. If you took those Muslim relics that are down in Istanbul, behind them are Christian relics. And so, and, and they dominated, I mean, that dynasty lasted for a thousand, over a thousand years and controlled all those countries today that are Muslim in origin, but are, you know, different uh, sects of Muslim life. And those didn't exist until the end of the world wars. And so um, they haven't lived, lived, been there very long, uh, less than 100 years. So um, it's good for us to think in those terms that those countries have only been there a hundred years. And they, in the end, in, um, in Revelation where it says the ten kings give their thrones to the one king, the Antichrist, that's the, that's the, um, the unification of all those nations into one nation. That's all those countries, and we can name them today, who will join that coalition and become one nation under the Antichrist. So this is a fascinating chapter, but you notice what I read. Clearly wars going on, but no details given of those wars. Because, why not? Because the details are given over in tribulation, over in the book of Revelation. And so the, here there are no details, just a generality of what happens. And this is the progressive revelation that we talk about. Daniel saw it. He didn't understand it. He didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but John later saw more details and wrote greater details as God revealed more.
at the end of the first century. So, um, but here you see clearly the Antichrist coming on the scene. He's mentioned back in earlier in Daniel, in chapter 9, where Daniel talks about um, the people of the king to come. Uh, is talking about this very same time. So one day, hopefully, if, if God tarries and we have an opportunity, we'll go through this book. I mean, my plan has been to get us to Ezekiel, walk through Ezekiel, go back then and look at Daniel. Ezekiel was written in the midst of Daniel writing what he wrote. Daniel wrote for a very long time. Ezekiel wrote for only about 30 years in between when Daniel started and when Daniel finished. So Ezekiel is contained within Daniel because Ezekiel will be finished here and uh, while he predicted the future, you remember back in chapter 33 and 34 when we made the transition from predicting to what happens at the establishment of the millennial kingdom, he was done at that point predicting any future. Uh, Egypt wouldn't be destroyed for another 30 or 40 years by the Babylonians, but Daniel, um, and Daniel doesn't write about that. Daniel uh, ultimately comes and writes um, about this end times, but it's been several years. They've been in captivity over 70 years when Daniel writes the end of his book, meaning, and, and he actually details the switch of the Babylonian rule to the Persian rule. Because Cyrus the Persian is the one who allows Israel to go back to their land. And Daniel writes about all of that. Ezekiel doesn't because he finishes before that all happens. Don't know if he dies or not, but he at least finishes his writing. So it's, it's good for us to look at Ezekiel first and then go look at Daniel, which is a broader perspective. And then if the Lord wills, we'll go over to Revelation with enough revealed here that we can understand what's revealed in Revelation better. So uh, I learned the, the lesson the hard way by trying to teach Revelation by itself. And you find yourself backtracking to Daniel all the time. So it'd be better to teach Daniel first, then go to Revelation. So that's the plan, okay? We're 30 weeks into a very long plan. So, but if the Lord tarries, that time will go fast. And we'll look at all these details. The very last verse of Daniel 11 talks about this abomination of desolation. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So there you have him establishing his kingdom in the beautiful land in Israel, over the mountains. So he's sitting over the temple of God. And then he comes to an end. And you remember he comes to an end when Christ comes on a white horse. He picks up, and the scripture literally says this, he picks up the false prophet and the Antichrist and throws them into the lake of fire. There's no resistance. There's no battle. They're just done. And that's what this speaks of. He'll come to his end and there will be no one to help him because Jesus Christ does him in. And a thousand years later, when Satan is, or over a thousand years later, when Satan is thrown to the, into the lake of fire, the false prophet and the Antichrist are still there. So they've been suffering in the lake of fire for over a thousand years, and that's where they'll spend eternity.
hard to think about, but nevertheless true. So those are, we haven't looked at every war that's given in the scriptures, but those are the, the four significant, or three, yeah, four wars that happen is the one at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, the one at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, this one detailed in Daniel, and then the one that we've looked at, we're going to look at in more detail in, in Ezekiel. Those are the four wars. And you, and you need to get a framework of how you look at those and how you parse those because it influences what you believe about the other parts of the book of Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation for that matter. So that's why I took time to go through all of this. Okay? Right. And in reality, Satan inserts himself at very defined points. The rest of it is all man. Yeah. It is the heart of man. And if you don't get that, the likelihood of having a very wrong worldview rooted in a very wrong view of the heart of man apart from God's work is very high. And it will unhinge you from being able to make any sense out of all of it. Yeah, the only place where we see Satan specifically coming and causing havoc on the planet is in the Antichrist. And it's clear that um, the Antichrist is, in, is indwelt by demons, but he's a human. He's not uh, some, something from, you know, that, that was created by Satan or is unique. He's a man. He's clearly a man, but he is empowered by demon forces. And you actually see in Revelation that the angels of God come and fight against Satan in the midheaven, between heaven and the earth, and throw Satan and his demons down to the earth. And so he's no longer free to roam and go to the throne of God and accuse the saints. That's all ended in the tribulation. And he's thrown down to the earth. And that's why there's so much havoc on the earth. Because he goes after Israel and cannot get her. God protects her and hides her. And so then he wreaks havoc against everything else. Which is why the Antichrist destroys even kingdoms that are on the earth. And, and wipes them out because they will not yield to him as their God. And so he destroys them. And of course, that includes all of the Christians. I believe that during the tribulation time, if there are any saints who live through the tribulation other than Israel into the new order under God, there aren't going to be many. There are going to be very few. There may be some, but there will be very few. The scripture does not say that every person who does not believe in Jesus Christ is killed. And it likewise does not say that everyone who does believe in Jesus Christ is killed. There are people who teach that and I go, where do you get that? 
Um, the scripture clearly does not say that in tribulation, uh, in, the, in the revelation. It does not say that every single person who does not believe in, in Jesus Christ is killed. It does not say that. It says all the armies who come against God are killed. But think about today. Does every single person go into the army to fight? No. There are a lot of people who are left at home. Matter of fact, the great majority of people are left at home. And so why would it be different then? You know, um, but there are people who teach that. And I go, I just don't see where you get that. I think the earth is still pretty inhabited at the end of the tribulation. You know, we're given that, um, that over half of the people who are on the planet are killed specifically in Revelation. There's no doubt that's detailed. But that still leaves a couple of billion people if it happened today on the planet. I mean, there's like 8 billion people on the planet today. And so 4 to 5 billion of them you can see are killed in Revelation, but the other 4 or 5 aren't. And so I, I don't know where they get that, but there are people who teach that and say I'm absolutely wrong to believe there are people who live through the tribulation. But I, and Scripture doesn't say what they claim to be true. So you have to, you have to look at these things and I mean, some men that I love, and I love their teaching, would strongly disagree with me on those statements I just made. And I'm okay with that, because they can't back up their argument with Scripture. And so I go, it's just your opinion. And I have a different opinion, <laughs> because the Scripture doesn't say it. So uh, anyway, I just, just a soapbox, right? Mm -hmm. 18 and see it's a generational mandate. Right. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Right. Foolish, and God gave them over, gave them over, gave them over. And it's at that point where the influence of Satan's realm, king, all of his forces become the mind of man. Yeah. Because God has literally removed the restraints that he's holding society under with the laws of yeah. And to me, that, that's, that's why that cycle begins with moral perversion right. and then ends up with a useless mind. Well, and, 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 and the world's worldview struggles with the fact that man is, is, is wicked in his heart and fallen. Yeah, that, that's the problem with that is because it takes away my self-esteem, theoretically, right? When you understand the truth, it doesn't the exact opposite. But nevertheless, that's what leads to that. You know, it's interesting. Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah and understands that they're only going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years because that's, that's what Jeremiah wrote, that they would only be there 70 years. So Daniel begins to pray to God to help him to understand what's going to happen. And he has to pray a long time because the angel that God sends to speak to Daniel, which is the last four or five chapters of Daniel, is hindered by Satan in the midheaven. He prevents him, he blocks him from being able to get to Daniel until Gabriel comes and pushes him out of the way and takes care of him so the angel can come 
and speak to Daniel. Then the angel has to leave Daniel because he has work to do in Persia to support the Persian army to come against Babylon. It's, it's fascinating to start thinking about some of these things. Do the angels have influence and affect things? Absolutely. It's, yeah. He's an old man. Right. Well, the angel's actually reading it to him. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel's reading this, the book of Jeremiah. So he obviously had it. Right. And Daniel is high up in the Babylonian political system. I mean, he's way up there. And so he has lots of authority and he can do these things. But yet, when God tries to send an angel to him, he's prevented by Satan. He's intercepted by Satan. And until a war happens in the mid-heavens, and someone removes Satan, and that's Gabriel, this angel can't come and bring Daniel a message. Really? And then this angel needs to go back and help Persia overcome the Babylonians. You're like, really? That's how things actually happen? Yeah, that's how things actually happen. Oh, they try to bind him, right? You know, that's craziness. In the middle of a prayer to God to speak to Satan and try and bind him. That is, that is blasphemy in the, in, to, the, to the Lord above. I mean, that should never happen. You don't stop, excuse me, God, while I go bind Satan. No way. That is craziness. And he has powers way more than any man could have, even a man indwelt by the Spirit could have because the scripture says that if God didn't cause the the tribulation to be shortened that even those who believe would fall meaning those who are indwelt by the spirit of God would be deceived by the evil one and yet they sit here and try and bind him really They, they just don't understand what is actually happening it's craziness to even think those kind of things so how did we get there? I'm not sure. But, I mean, the book of Daniel is fascinating because of these things that happen. And you talk about Daniel reading the scriptures. The angel literally, I believe, reads the book of God that where it's already been written what's going to happen in the future. And he's sitting there reading that book to Daniel to tell Daniel what's going to happen. I mean, that's what it says. He says he reads the scroll and so that's got to be the book of God because it's not one of the scrolls that Daniel has and could read for himself. So this angel who gives Daniel all this information is literally reading the book of God that details what's going to happen in the future. So it's already been written. It's not like it's going to deviate from what God says and has decreed. It's going to go exactly according to that book. And that's, you begin to believe that more when you study chapter 11 of Daniel, because so much history is given in excruciating detail that no one could ever even begin to understand. I mean, really, the Persians coming in, taking the Babylonians, and the Romans taking the Persians, all detailed there in, in the book of Daniel? How could that be? And, and Alexander the Great's kingdom being split into four kingdoms? How could anybody know that was going to happen? 
He does. He knows every detail of what's going to happen. And God does turn the hearts of kings. It's good to understand that. God does. There's no power that has been established except by God. So says Paul in the book of, of Romans. So this evil that rules the world does so only by the ordination and authority of God. And that's true in our land and it's true in other lands. So don't struggle so when it happens because God has got it in control. And that doesn't mean it's going to be good for you or good for me. He never promised that. What he promised is that in the end, it'll be okay. So we shouldn't struggle so. And I see so many Christians warring against the government. And, and yeah, you should take every opportunity to speak against evil. I, I would never say you shouldn't. But to some of the things that go on under the name of God are not godly. And so you have to think long and hard before you join some of those things. Ezekiel chapter 38. We're finally going to get there for about five minutes. And then we'll go elsewhere. We've looked at a lot of this. So we'll go through chapters 38 and 39 pretty quickly because we've looked at a lot of this um, as we looked at other wars and things. But let's just introduce again... um, Ezekiel chapter 38, and then we'll stop for today. Um, I knew it would take me longer than I thought, but nevertheless. So Ezekiel 38, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, we've talked about this. That Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal should be better translated, would be better translated, that Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. That's what it literally says. That Rosh is not a land, it's, um, it's a title, and it really means the highest of the princes. So Gog, this, if it's a person, maybe, maybe it could just be a title like emperor or president. It repre- but this is clear. He's in control of Meshach and Tubal. And as these armies are orchestrated against Israel, it's Gog who is the commander of these forces. They're joining him to come against Israel. So he is some kind of supreme leader. He's, um, you know, I believe this is after the millennial kingdom. So uh, anytime you have armies that are coordinated against an enemy, there has to be someone in charge. There has to be someone who's directing how it's going to play out. And in this case, that's God. And so because of that, God says to Gog, this is a message given to Ezekiel to speak to Gog who doesn't exist yet and won't exist for at least 3,500 years. Because you've got our time frame, the current age of 2,000 years, 
you got the millennial reign, and you got to remember that Daniel, uh, Ezekiel is writing around 600 B.C., 570 or something like that. So it's at least 2,000, 1,500. It's at least 3,500 years into the future before this guy even exists. Yet, here, Ezekiel is told to speak this word against him. And this, I mean, can you imagine God speaking to you and saying, I am against you. I mean, you're undone, right? Who's going to go against God? The, the supreme creator. And, you know, he said this multiple times in Ezekiel. And I just want to turn and look at those, and then we'll stop. You look back in chapter 34, and now you begin to get the impact. Because God's going to destroy Gog, right? Well, you remember what he said to the shepherds of Israel in chapter 34 in verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep, so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. These are when the, the leaders of Israel in the beginning of the millennial kingdom have lived through the tribulation. And God says, you're not part of my sheep. And puts them out. Because he's against them. So anybody who's against God is not going to be in the kingdom of God. Look at what he says over in chapter 35, I think it is, when he speaks to Mount Seir. Yeah. Verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. That's the destruction of the kingdom of Edom by God directly during the millennial kingdom. He's going to destroy Edom. Mount Seir is equivalent to Edom, which is equivalent to the descendants of Esau. All of those mesh together into Mount Seir. Mount Seir is simply the highest peak in the land that Esau took over and controlled that led to the Edomites. So that's why he says Mount Seir is the highest peak in that region. And so this is God saying, I am against you. So when he says to Gog, I am against you, Gog is going to fail. Anybody that God says he's against is not in the kingdom of God and will be destroyed by God. Whether it's through the hands of other men or by God directly, one or the other, they're done for. And so God says that against Gog at the very beginning of this prophecy. So you know that Gog is going to be wiped out. He's going to be undone. So that's where we'll leave this morning. And like I said, we can go through 38 and 39 pretty quickly because we've already looked at a lot of the things that are written there as we looked at the characteristics of the wars. So we'll, if God wills, we'll pick up there next week. Thanks for your time.